Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles today to Isaiah chapter 6, everyone. Isaiah chapter 6. Today we will be reading verses 8 to 13. Verses 8 to 13. Let's read the word of the Lord together. This is what God's word says to us, beginning in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we are mindful of the Lord Jesus who is the Savior of all people. And the Bible says that Jesus in Christ is creating a new humanity, as it were, a new people for himself. And yet, Lord, that great cosmic redemptive and eschatological end, that goal, is not without its means. It is not without its practical instrument, which is the preaching of the gospel. And so, Lord, we realize that what Isaiah was called to here was to a ministry of preaching, a ministry of heralding, and yet his ministry is so misunderstood, and his ministry was perceived as being that of a doom and gloom prophet. But Lord, in the midst of Isaiah's oracles of judgment, there is salvation. And Father, today we pray that you would fix our eyes on the hope and on the salvation ready to be revealed to us in the last time. That in the midst of our gloom, in the midst of our tribulation, the judgment we see all around us, the decadence, the evil, the depth of darkness, that we would too, Lord, look, lift up our eyes and look up to heaven as it were and to see where it is that our hope comes from, where our strength comes from, that there is a day coming that you have promised that causes us to rise above to be able to transcend above the trials, the tribulation, the sorrow, the hardship, the decay of this world and on into the redemption that you have for your people, the 
the rescue, the salvation, the hope, and the glory. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to further understand the gospel as we look at the prophet Isaiah and his immense calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Much of what we're looking at today has to do with the misunderstanding of the prophet Isaiah. And I say he is misunderstood because just in the first opening verse of this section, verse 8, how many times have we heard sermons, missionary sermons, evangelistic sermons, and wherein we hear people passionately say from the pulpit, pounding the pulpit, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go, use me, Lord. How many Pentecostal sermons and Pentecostal services have been surrounding that text right there. I will be a prophet to the nations, they say. And sometimes the heart in that is right. The heart will be to be used by God, to be an instrument, to be a vessel, and that's right. But, but scarcely is that text ever preached alongside of its context, which is verses 9 to 13. That's what I mean by, this is a greatly misunderstood passage and uh, misused passage because if we're honest with verses 9 through 13, the calling of Isaiah to preach and to herald the message of the divine counsel is ominous. And therefore, what Isaiah gives us here, what we could call the divine counsel, counsel the divine decree and then keep our eye on the divine purpose what is the purpose that God has in all this it's almost like how do we go from the counsel of God to the purpose of God and the way that it is realized so that's what we're going to be looking at here now understand from the context of Isaiah chapter 6, what's taken place? Isaiah, having just had the vision of being cleansed, his lips have been touched by that which is on the altar and the burning stones so that he is cleansed in terms of his whole person. He is qualified in a sense. He is, he is made right. He is fit for the calling. That happens first. It's almost as if God has not spoken in this chapter yet until the prophet is cleansed because up until this critical point right here, God cannot speak to the prophet a word of kindness, a word of commission because up to this point, up to the cleansing of the prophet Isaiah, the only word that he will hear is a word of condemnation because he desperately first needs to be cleansed. But having so cleansed the prophet, now there is another escalation. It's, like the pro- it's not like the vision is over. You know, I think we kind of come down from that in verse 7, thinking that, wow, amazing, right? The seraphim, they take the coal, they cleanse his lips, you know, and Isaiah is forgiven But the vision goes on, and in a real sense, the vision intensifies because God speaks. And so it says, I heard the voice of the Lord, and the voice of the Lord here is the voice of Adonai, which is so appropriate 
in the context. Even more appropriate than the word Yahweh or the word Elohim or something like that. But Adonai is the word that means sovereign. And so even as God is about to unleash His divine purposes, His sovereign purposes, as we will go from Isaiah's time clear on into the end of the age. Matter of fact, the title of my sermon today, if you want to write it down or think about it, is this, Isaiah preaching and the end of the age. Because in the counsel of God, we have seen that it pertains to Isaiah as a prophet, making him ready, preparing him, qualifying him. But also, in the decree of God, as we will see, we will find the content of Isaiah's preaching and what it is that he is to proclaim to the people. And also, in this very text, there is a slight intimation of prophecy. There is a slight sort of inclination towards a future time that I will argue has to do with the end of the age. And uh, so we'll take a look at that. But here, you know, the prophet Isaiah has entered into the temple as we saw. He has seen the beauty of the seraphim. He has been overcome by the glory of the smoke of the temple, filling the temple. He has been made aware of a sinful crisis. And at that time, God mercifully cleansed him before speaking to him. And when God finally speaks, a remarkable thing happens in verse 8. God reveals himself as both plural and singular. You guys see that? Whom shall I, singular, send, and who will go for us, plural? So in a very interesting stroke of genius here, God reveals himself to Isaiah as singular and plural. And so a lot of debate has ensued specifically with the use of the plural pronoun us kind of reminds us of the Genesis prologue where God says, let us make man in our image. Because God has a history of speaking about himself in the plural. Now, there's so many views on this issue, but there's really three that God here is consulting the seraphim who are in the context, or God is using what's known as a majestic plural, a plural of majesty, which is the way that kings would essentially speak of themselves. They weren't necessarily speaking of different persons, but it was a way of speaking of themselves in the third person so that they can sort of uh, add to the majesty of their personhood. (laughs) And yet there's another view saying here that God was speaking to the angels in some form or fashion. That kind of goes along with the seraphim. And then later on, of course, as Christian theology sort of progressed, um, they took this as a reference to the Trinity, that this is the triune God deliberating among the persons of the Godhead. Now, my opinion on this point, and it's not a dogmatic one because it's a difficult issue, uh, admittedly, I don't know that I'm 100% convinced either way, but I think it's safe to say that there's a mixture of things going on here, that God is speaking this in the midst of the council of the angels, of the seraphim, those who make up the royal court, and they are there, really consulted as witnesses, not as advisors so much, okay? But at the same time, we know that God is also 
in the counsel of his own triune, tripersonal Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is a deduction that we should make, safely make, based on the Trinitarian development of that text, this text right here, by Jesus himself. When Jesus, or at least the apostles, speaking of Jesus in John chapter 12, explicitly say that Isaiah in this chapter, chapter 6, saw the glory of the Son. And so there, no question about it, the presence of the Father, the presence of the Son, and if you take the imagery of the filling of the temple with the smoke as the image of the Spirit, which that's my position, is the image of the Spirit there, then you have a case for the tripersonal God in deliberative counsel among the heavenly hosts whereby he reveals himself. Anytime God speaks, either in the midst of angels, in the midst of men, he is always condescending to us. He has to bring down his revelation to our level. And so he does that consistently throughout the word of God. It's not as if God is actually asking the question that he needs an answer for, right? We believe in an omniscient God, a God that knows all things. And so when God asks a question, it is mainly rhetorical, it is mainly anthropomorphic, and it is mainly condescension for our sake. It is as if God is bringing us into a conversation that we can understand, and uh, mercifully so. But here, again, the point is, that the divine counsel has more to do with Isaiah than with God at this point because it is the preparation of a commission for the prophet. It was the conforming of Isaiah to the very glory realm in which he finds himself. And so put on your thinking caps here for a moment because I want you to understand that in the pattern of prophets in the Bible, this is something you need to understand, the paradigm for all prophets in the Bible is Moses. Moses is the paradigm for all the subsequent prophets that you're going to find in the biblical text. Why do I say that? Because Moses is the one who was allowed to go into the presence of God. You remember? In Exodus, into the presence of God he went. And when he came down, the people were scared of him because he was glowing with the glory of God. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to say that that glory was prophetic of the new covenant glory that we perceive in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the true prophet, priest, and king of God. But, but for, the, for, for now, as, prophet goes, as uh, Moses goes up into the mountain, he becomes like God. He mirrors the glory of God, just like 2 Corinthians says. There is a mirroring going on. And as he mirrors that, he is reflecting the glory of God. And that is exactly what is going on with Isaiah. Isaiah is being taken up in this vision into the heavenly realm in order to reflect the very glory of God and to become like him. It's like refashioning him back into the image of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is critical for you to see these connections. Moses, the image of God, the glory of God. They all go together. This is God conforming the prophet to the heavenly realm as he gives him his earthly commission to go and to herald 
the decree of the king. Let me read to you one quote by Meredith Klein in his groundbreaking book called Images of the Spirit. So put on your thinking cap for a second. You're like, yeah, I've been trying to do that the whole time. Maybe Klein can make it a bit clearer, which just would be rare for Klein to achieve that. But I think this is a good one. He says, to be caught up in the Spirit was to be received into the divine assembly. That's what happened to Isaiah. The heavenly reality within the theophanic glory spirit. And what Klein means by that is, again, the temple that is filled with smoke is the image of the spirit that permeates all of the heavenly realm. And that is where Isaiah finds himself. This is a thick theology we're talking about. The hallmark of the true prophet was that he had stood before the Lord of glory in the midst of the deliberative council of angels, while the false prophet was one who had not done so and consequently lacked divine legitimation, essential qualification. Isn't it amazing that as we think about true and false prophets, what does Moses say? What does the paradigmatic prophet say? The prophet says in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Moses says, God will send another prophet like me among your brethren, and God will put his words in him, and you will listen to him. Then he goes on to talk about, but if a prophet speaks on behalf of God, and he speaks presumptuously, and the thing that he speaks does not come to pass, you shall not listen to him, and indeed, you shall put him to death. It was evidence that he had not been with God. He hadn't had an encounter with God. He hadn't received revelation from God in the Spirit. So understanding that mainly through, if it helps you, understanding that mainly in the context of a vision, even as Isaiah in the Spirit is raptured up in the Spirit, in a vision, into heaven. And there, because he has a personal encounter with Yahweh, he is qualified. He has legitimation as a prophet. It was by such a vision rapture into the heavenly presence that the prophet's call came to them, raising them up for their mission as plenipotentiary emissaries of the Lord, meaning authoritative, authoritative emissaries of God who was enthroned in the heavenly court. Such was the call that came to Isaiah and Ezekiel introduced into the council, privileged to hear their disclosure of the Lord's purposes, the prophets were ready to be sent to men on earth as authoritative spokesmen, as the very mouth of God. See why God cleansed His mouth? Because He was to act as the mouth of God, to speak the very Word of God. And by virtue of His spirit rapture into heaven, the prophet took on the glory that diffused from the heavenly court. He was transformed into the likeness of the King of glory whom he beheld. Whom he beheld. There on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And so Isaiah, having experienced the redemptive power of God in his own soul, in his own life, was now being fitted, equipped, made ready, qualified to experience God's power to judge. 
Brothers and sisters, as we think about the divine decree that emanates out of the divine counsel, what it is, the very nature of it, it's an oracle, it is a decree of judgment. Look with me again at verse 9. Go tell this people, and the commentators actually point out when it says, go tell this people, there might be more there than meets the eye. Maybe uh, God is uh, sort of doing a play on words because customarily when he is endeared towards Israel, he doesn't call them this people. He calls them my people. It's almost as if right here, God is, in a sense, divorcing them, separating them. Lo ami, they are not my people, as Hosea says. But he says... Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the heart of these people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Why did I entitle my message, Isaiah, Preaching and the End of the Age? Well, Isaiah is obvious, not just because we're in the book of Isaiah, but because we're looking at the experience of Isaiah in that vision. But also, there are many important and valuable lessons for us here to learn regarding the ministry of preaching. Preaching. Uh, So much can be said on this point, but suffice it to say that Isaiah's calling will be to herald the judgment of of God. It will be a message that will not be kindly received. Uh, it will be a message that will render no apparent success. And Isaiah will gain no fanfare whatsoever from the people, from the nation. It is sort of a parallel. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah, I will set everyone in the nation against you. Don't think we can quite understand, brothers and sisters, the immensity, the gravity of the calling of these prophets. Whatever image we may have in our mind, these men, I think, were men that I don't know how to describe them other than maybe what the Bible says. You know, these were men who brought down kingdoms, Hebrews chapter 11, who were thrown into prisons, fed to lions, who had to dwell in holes in the ground, who were sawn in half, things like that. It's like the ministry manual that has never been written. (laughs) You want to be a preacher? (laughs) Just look at Isaiah. Isaiah will be hated. According to tradition, he will be martyred. And here's a valuable lesson for all of us who dare to take up God's word and to preach it. Today, wouldn't you agree, we're trying to do everything possible, really irks me, to preach in a way that's more appealing, more attractive, more reasonable, relevant, understandable, more basic, more compassionate, more funny, more entertaining, more focused on what people say that they need, what they say that they need, and less about what God says that they need. Notice that the context in Isaiah is that of national demise. Remember, King Uzziah just died. So right in the very forefront of people's minds, people are thinking of the the needs they think they need. 
We need economy. We need safety. Who's going to protect us from the Assyrians and the the Babylonians and et cetera, et cetera? We need prosperity. We need agriculture. That's what we need. We need to fill up our cisterns, our livestock. That's what they think they need. But that is not what God thinks that they need. And as long as we find ourselves preaching to man's felt needs, we are not preaching to man's true needs, their deepest needs. And the same needs already revealed to Isaiah in the heavenly tribunal. This is why Isaiah had to go through what he had to go through to show him emphatically, infallibly, and without mistake Isaiah, your deepest need is to be cleansed. Your deepest need is religious. It's to be put right with God. It's to be right in the sight of God, to be acceptable before God, and that's exactly what people need. Oh, it shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, when the culture looks at our preaching as archaic, out-fashioned, outdated, outmoded, just ho-hum, you know, just totally irrelevant, totally un, you know, impractical, not useful. John Oswald, in his amazing commentary, two-volume commentary on Isaiah, says this. Isaiah's preaching will not make it easier for people to believe and to repent. It will make it more difficult. You ever going to find that in a book on preaching today? You ever going to find that in a homiletics manual? How to preach so as to make it harder for people to repent and believe. That's like ministry suicide. When pastors are obsessed with growing their church, obsessed with growing their tithes and offering, obsessed with a business model that they want to implement on the church, how do you do that when God at times is telling you, preach in such a way that people will either repent or they will rebel? They will either, you know, Trust it or hate it. They'll either come back or they'll never come back again. You know, at a small measure, I've experienced this. I've experienced both the warmth and the hatred. You know, and ministry is like that. It will render you like that. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said that a a pastor that's gone through ministry and has gone through any kind of trials whatsoever, he finds himself that he doesn't fit in the world and he doesn't fit in the church. He's the odd man out. And I understand a little bit about that. Do you know how many people in this city, okay, North DFW, let's expand it a little bit. You know how many people in DFW hate me? You laugh, and that's my wife I'm rebuking. Oh, it's because she knows, she knows it more than all you. No, seriously, do you know how many people in this town hate my guts because I told them the truth or because I put them under church discipline or because I refuse to waver on some biblical thing? Breaks my heart. It'll keep you up at night. You won't sleep at times. But you've got to do it if you're going to be God's man. 
You can't have your own interest at that point, or you will waver, you will compromise, and you'll be a hireling. It comes with a price. It comes with a cost to be God's herald, and it did for Isaiah much, 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 much more than any of us. It gets down to the very heart of the decree that God intended for his word to have an effect upon this recalcitrant nation, this rebellious nation, that his word would become the occasion of hardening and judicially judging the people for their sin. And so many sermons preached on evangelism. Here I am, O Lord. Send me. I'll go. Use me. Do whatever you want. I wonder how many of those people will go further and quote verses 9 to 13 of themselves. There is a staggering injunction in this text, as we'll see. In other words, part of his commission and what he is to preach. But we've got to understand this if we're going to know how to apply it, how to understand the theology, how it applies to us today. In God's eyes, the nation had become worthless, and they had become dull. They had become idolatrous. You know the text because Jesus quoted it. Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, because this people draws near to me with their words and honor me with their lips or with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, meaning just meaningless repetition. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. What does that mean? It almost doesn't make sense if you don't study this carefully. Wait a second. So, First, he talks about the people's hearts are not right with him. And then in the next verse, he says, I will deal marvelously with these people. What does that mean? It's almost like for a negative, he's going to give a positive? No. The marvelous dealings of God when it says, deal marvelous with these, marvelously with these people. And then he says, wondrously marvelous. This is to hearken back to all of the redemptive acts of God throughout history, the acts of power, judgment, captivity, bondage, uh, exile, all of those things. That's what he's talking about. He will bring to pass another upheaval in the history of the people because their hearts were so blind and calloused. God's word at this point did not profit them. Oh, how terrifying this is even practically on a personal level how terrifying it is to hear that in God's eyes a person who is hardened callous to the things of God uh, I'm saying you can get to such a point where God essentially gives you over to a reprobate mind now we don't know who or when that happens to a person I would say only God does but I believe there's a point in which God has determined No further. I will not strive with this person anymore. From now on, my word will only serve to harden the heart until at last it produces judgment. That's terrible. But that is the wages of sin. And as a matter of fact, 
from this text, for God, this generation had reached a point of no return. It is as if they had heard, the more the truth that they had heard, the more they rebelled against it. It is as if the more light they had, the more darkness they walked in. It is as if the more they advanced politically and economically and technologically, militarily, the more they forgot God. The more they knew, that, the more they knew about God, chapter 5, verse 24, the more they came to despise Him. If they will not have God in salvation, well, they would have Him in judgment. If they will not be a light to all the nations of the glory of God and His redemption, they would become a byword to the nations of the wrath of God. The vision Isaiah saw ensures one thing for certain, meaning this is the logic of Isaiah having gone into the upper register, into the heavenly realm, into the temple of God and seen the glory of the enthroned king because one thing was for certain, that wave upon wave upon wave of historical and historically realized judgments, i.e. through Assyria, through Babylon, and then into the future through the Persians, through the Romans, eventually one thing for Isaiah would always had remained, would remain true that God will be glorified. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 16, you can look over at that, but he says, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. And that's why Isaiah himself became a paradigm. He, came, he became typological of another prophet, of another herald of God. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, because in John 12, we see the connection that what Isaiah saw, the oracle of judgment that he had for Israel in his day, was also condemning and conditioning a future generation, culminating in the advent of Christ who was rejected according to prophecy, according to God's decree. In John's gospel, the inspired writer, John, strings together an entire theology out of the book of Isaiah to establish just that fact. Look at what it says, Isaiah 12, verse 37. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Same thing could be said of Israel. Though God had performed many signs before them, though he, had, though he had parted the Red Sea, though he had rained down fire and brimstone from heaven, though he had sent angels in to deliver them, though he had given them the law, though he had appeared to them at Sinai, though his glory had descended on the tabernacle at the temple, all the great mighty deeds of the Lord, though they had seen the signs, they did not believe. Why? And this is where a great theological divide begins to emerge. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, why is that important? Because that right there connects us to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And then he backs up and he says, for this reason, wow, notice the causal 
agent here. The prophetic word spoken concerning the servant of the Lord. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his, i.e., Jesus' glory. And he spoke of him, i.e., Jesus. It is therefore a dreadful thing to consider that in verse 10, I don't know if you caught it when I read Isaiah 6. Read it again with me. It takes a little bit of Greek grammar to feel the gravity of it. Verse 10 is an imperatival construction. In other words, this is a command by God to the prophet. Render, there's the imperative, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Wow. Render their hearts insensitive. Matter of fact, the Hebrew word insensitive literally means to make fat or insensitive. It's like, whoa, the etymology of that is way miles apart. On the one hand, it means to make fat. On the other uh, part, it means to make insensitive. What gives? It's kind of like a, a ripening for destruction. The people, in a sense, were to be given over to their glut, the glut of their own devices. Because they were gluttons of sin, they were incapable of thirsting for the living water of the Spirit. By feasting on their sins, they had no appetite for God. Through Isaiah's preaching, they were being fattened for the day of slaughter. James chapter 5. However, and in James chapter 5, ooh, pay attention there. James chapter 5 is all about surrounding yourself with comforts, materialism, things, the love of the world, all of that. And if we're not careful, we can give our hearts to those things. And so the gospel is warning us, warning us use the world, but do not make full use of it. Be a part of the world, but don't be fully identified with it. You see, it's like you've got to have an open hand, okay? It's like, here's my iPhone 11. I love it, <laughs> and it's really cool, but I'm going to hold it like this. Now, don't do it. It'll fall, but you know what I mean. Hold it with an open hand. God, you can give me the upgrade, the technology, and you can take it away if you'd like. My heart is not attached to it. My heart is not connected to these things. If it is, got to be careful that I'm not being fattened for the day of slaughter, that I'm not being ripened, conditioned by what seems to be harmless things. I mean, after all, what's wrong with clothes? What's wrong with food? What's wrong with restaurants and shopping and, you know, all of those things? Nothing necessarily. But sometimes it can be your undoing if that's where your heart is. On and on this goes. But what about the divine purpose? Because if you notice, 
Not only does it have to do with preaching, it has to do with the word of God coming through Isaiah as judgment. Not only is it prophetic of the ministry of Jesus himself, who would be in essentially taking a hardened people and calcifying them in the hardness of their own hearts. But there is also a divine purpose for a future time. Uh, Notice verse 11. Go there. I was so tempted to break up this text because I thought, too big. Verses 8 through 13, that's, that's a lot of Scripture. But it's got to go together because it's like Isaiah comes up for air here, verse 11. It's like he breathes for a moment. It's a moment of clarity. Lord, how long? If this is to be the commission, if this is to be the command, right? Next time you hear a missions sermon, out of Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for us, right? And all the missionaries in the conference say, I will go, here I am, send me. The preacher better respond with Isaiah's imperative. Render the hearts of the people insensitive. You can do that? Probably not. But in Isaiah's context, Isaiah understood the gravity of what's going on so that he says, In a sense, he exclaims, it's almost like, oh, Lord, for how long will it be the case? How long will this calling last? And God says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. So that is definitely pointing towards a future time when Assyria would destroy the northern kingdom and the uh, Babylonians would come in and sweep up the southern kingdom and take them off beyond the river Euphrates, with meat hooks in their nose, off to captivity. And so this alerts us to something, that Isaiah, like all the other prophets, stood in solidarity with God's decrees. This is important for us to understand. What are the prophets? Brothers and sisters, what are the prophets? Who are they? What is their function? What is their purpose? You know what they are? They are those who stand in solidarity with God's decrees. They are God's instruments. They are God's weapon. They are God's executors of judgment. How do I know? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. What is going on there? Jeremiah will explain it. 28, verse 8. Jeremiah 28, verse 8. The prophets, here we get a little commentary on what the prophets were, what they did, and what their calling and their purpose is, okay? Jeremiah 28, verse 8. The prophets who were before me, just like Isaiah was before the Lord, and before you, from ancient times, prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. They were the divine contour of judgment. Isn't it amazing? Just like Moses walking into the Egyptian court. Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, God will strike the land with a pestilence so grave He will send flies. Oh, I hate flies. You hate flies? I think it's biblical to hate flies. I have a screen door in the back of my, you know, Texas, forget about it. 
Flies are just everywhere. When I was in Africa back in the year 2000, let me just give you a little, we're so sheltered here. Bugs, how terrible bugs are. I saw, I thought I knew bugs, you know. In Africa, I was walking down a dirt trail and I heard something and I was like, what is that? I heard crackling and crinkling. You know what it was? It was a river of fire ants coming out of the bushes. Have you ever heard ants make noise? These are one, one and a half inch ants. <laughs> and what they do, sorry to gross you out, but it's a good, good preaching illustration. They, di- they burrow into your skin and break their body off. So they got to go in and my friend Christian got shot with a bunch of them. And sit there systematically, pluck out the head, and you know, it's just stuff missionaries go through, no big deal. I thought I knew bugs until I went to Africa. When I went to Africa, I realized they had these other bugs. They're like wasps, but they don't sting. They're totally harmless. They don't do anything to you, but they're just disgusting. And uh, while we're eating every meal that I had for two months, these bugs, they love just to land on your plate and walk around. So, you know, they're like big as hornets, and they just... And you're like... You can't get them off. So you just learn to eat with the bugs. And just the pe- imagine a pestilence of that. Imagine just being just saturated in bugs and fleas and all of that. And God brought those plagues through the voice of the prophet into the land to fill the land with misery. Isaiah is almost going into a state of being an enemy of God. Don't you see what's going on here? It's like God is decreating the nation. They're unraveling. They're resembling Egypt more than Israel. God is going to bring judgment to them. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7, he already spoke of this. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation overthrown by strangers. Now, there's another layer here. This is not all just pertaining to the reality that Isaiah saw a vision and this is what God spoke, but this is God's covenant faithfulness. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would please, turn with me to your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, because there we see that what is going on here in the book of Isaiah is a covenantal issue. Isaiah and the people, well not Isaiah, but in Isaiah the people, Israel, Judah, They may have completely forgotten the covenant, but God never forgets. This is what I saw about this. Looking at this, I was like, this is millennia after the covenant was given. And God never forgets his covenant promises, either to bless or to curse. Remember what God told Uzziah? As long as Uzziah is faithful to me, I will bless him. I will bless the nation. And then right before he died, what happened? Uzziah became so powerful, military, he won all these wars, and it's said that he became proud in his heart. So proud that he even went into the temple and offered up blasphemous incense to the Lord. That's how proud. And so the nation is in a point of covenant breaking. And if you look at what God told them back in Leviticus 18, verse 24 
Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, the abominations of immorality and everything else, idolatry. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. This is what is to distinguish you from them. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out the inhabitants. It has vomited out the people. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes, my judgments, my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out. You shall, uh, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation, which has been before you for whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge and, you, and that you not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. These are exactly the things that they did not do. And there has, there, there has resulted in the people an exile because they forgot that the land was not theirs. They just assumed God's always going to take care of us. We're the Jewish people. We're the descendants of Abraham. The land of Israel is ours. J- Jerusalem is ours. We dwell here. This is, you know, all the way from, from Ephraim all the way down to Judah. This is our land. We belong here. Don't we belong here? I don't know, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. It's like they didn't have the right to be real estate agents in their own land. They didn't want them auctioning off the promised land. God didn't want them to auction it off to people. Why? Because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and sojourners with me. When you break the covenant, God can take the covenant people out of the land and remove the promise. Even though they forget, God never forgets. That's the purpose in Isaiah's preaching. That's what's going to happen. That's what we're looking at. Devastation, desolation, removing men far away, forsaking them. Verse 13, we're almost done. There is one last element in this prophecy, and it has to do with the end of the age. Verse 13, there will be a tenth portion in it. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? There will be a tenth portion, almost like something will be left. Something will be preserved. Oh man, in the midst of all the desolation, the wasteland that Israel will become, finally we get a little word of promise. There'll be a tenth. But there's another aspect to this. Look what it says. And it will again be subject to burning. Oh! Like a terebinth or an oak, like an oak tree, whose stump remains when it is felled. He's not completely abating the desolation here. (laughs) It's like something gives, something's up, God's up to something. And then God says, the holy seed, 
is its stump. That's why modern day evangelicals have no connection to Isaiah because it's like, what is this about? I'm a modern person, 21st century, 2000, what is it, 20? We're there? No, almost there. What do I care about terebinths and oaks and stumps? Everything. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Several factors come to the fray here. It seems as if what this prophecy will do is it will perpetuate the destruction from generation to generation. It will perpetuate this redemptive historical process of judgment and salvation. Secondly, it will also, in these successive generations within this apparent remnant, the remnant will itself continue to undergo cleansing, further judgment, further desolation. And that's what you see leading all the way up to the day of Christ. It will again be subject to burning. And this will add to the mystery of God's deeds, God's works, God's decrees, God's purposes in Isaiah. While many will seek to realize the hope of Isaiah's eschatology in their own day, Isaiah's theology introduces an indeterminate amount of delay. And third, through the successive waves of turmoil, tribulation at the hands of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, again, the Medo-Persians and the Romans, all the empires that Daniel saw, Inherent in the prophecy is the theme of life for the people. There is here a promise of a future blossoming. So if you would, in your mind's eye, imagine a forest that has been laid waste. You know, like California, half the state is burned to the ground now because of who knows what. Imagine just a, a forest of burned trees with stumps in there, and then you see this black stump burnt and melted down, then a green shoot comes out of that burnt stump. And so God is saying, like that, like that, it will seem as if all hope is lost, and yet there will blossom from that stump something great. He says the holy seed is its stump. Is that why the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, depends on Isaiah in order to teach this exact theology. The Holy Seed, so far in this book, is to be identified with the remnant of chapter 1, verse 10. And, oh, where's that at? It's to be identified with those who repent. Chapter 2, verse excuse me, chapter 1, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So all throughout from chapter 1, 66, all the way throughout the book of Isaiah, we are supposed to, if you want to do the book of Isaiah justice, you're supposed to follow the remnant all the way through the chapters. Keep your eyes on the holy seed. Keep your eyes on the remnant, on the survivors, on the repentant ones. Keep your eyes on that because there is where we find what is realized in the church of God. Look at Romans 11. You're like, I've been waiting in Romans 11. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? You hear that coming from people in the day of Isaiah, can't you? This point? Has God rejected his people? May it never be. 
For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, it doesn't get more Jewish than me. And I'm a Christian. That's what he's saying. So what gives? No, no, no. God has not rejected his people, but here's the qualification. Ready? Whom he foreknew. The same word that is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 30. Those whom he pronosis, those whom he foreknew, he glorified. So here, Paul is saying, no, no, no. Those whom he foreknew, he has not forsaken. Or do you not know what the scripture says regarding the passage of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him coming from the divine counsel? He says, I have kept for myself. Oh, I, he, so wait a minute. God kept for himself. God has kept for himself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And what is the analog? Verse 5. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time, ready, Isaiah language, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So all the way, it's consistent all the way through. The doctrine of election. He'll make it more clear. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Here we go. But those who are chosen, elect, obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, and here he cites Isaiah 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Isaiah 29 is an exposition of Isaiah chapter 6. Same theology. What we're seeing here in Isaiah chapter 6 is the emergence of, of God's true people through judgment. Through judgment, the church will emerge. And what we find out from the rest of Scripture is that God is saving a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And this is what is causing me to go a little bit long because I have to get this out. This is the true Israel of God, brothers and sisters, the true nation, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the true circumcision, the true Jew. I had a Jewish gentleman come up to me randomly. Uh, we, Trish and I were out shopping somewhere. I think it was in Plano. Uh, a Jewish guy dressed like an Orthodox Jew. They were out giving flowers or something. It's kind of strange, but I saw a guy with a flower coming up to you. I'm like, well, <laughs> I didn't quite understand it. I, I think it was like a peace offering. I don't know, whatever. But he was Jewish. He came up to me and he said, he looked at me with the strangest look, and he says, are you Jewish? Every time I go to Israel, they think I'm either Jewish or Arab. It's hilarious. I'm like, no, man, I'm Mexican. They're like, what is that? You know? <laughs> At least in Israel, you know? 
Uh, and I'm like, you know, tacos, burritos, come on. <laughs> and uh, this Jewish guy, I told him, well, sort of. He goes, what do you mean? I says, I'm what's called a true Jew. What is that, he says. I said, Yeshua HaMashiach, Baruch Hashem Adonai, Yahweh Shuvah. Repent and believe in Yahweh through Jesus Christ. And so I told him, look, and he looked at me like, <laughs> he didn't give me the flower, by the way. I didn't get a flower. <laughs> but I am, you are, we are the true Jew, the, te the, te the temple, the tabernacle of God. We're the true sheep, the flock, the bride, the vineyard, the planting of the Lord, the remnant, the children of God. Friends of God, the true Zion, the apple of his eye, the household of God, the church of the living God. That is what God sees, and that is what God foreordains for through Isaiah when he sees the purpose of God in the holy seed, the stump of salvation that Paul calls in Romans 11 the rich root or the stump of of the olive tree. It is the one elect, eternal elect people of God from the foundation of the world that God has always purposed to create in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group of planet Earth. God's purpose is one. One. This is the, this is the chasm between dispensationalism, covenantalism, and sometimes Arminianism and Calvinism. God has one decree, one ultimate purpose. He doesn't make it up as he goes. Oh no, the Jewish people don't believe in me anymore, therefore I have to go do something else. No, 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 no. That too was in, in accordance with God's plan, even the rebellion and the reprobating of his people. Israel, under the old covenant. We're supposed to end the sermon? I don't know, man. We just, that's what we need to fellowship for, right? I have a whole application here on how Isaiah applies to us today evangelistically. Brothers and sisters, just like Isaiah, you are for the plucking up and the tearing down. You are for salvation and judgment. How do you know? Okay, one last verse and I'll leave you alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because I want us, brothers and sisters, to feel the gravity, the gravitas, at least a little bit of what Isaiah felt. I'm saying right now, today, Christian, you can feel the weight, the burden of what Isaiah saw because it's right here in the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us, just like through Isaiah, even though you are not going to give some revelation of God, okay? But through Isaiah, through, the, uh, uh, through, through us, like Isaiah, through the preaching of the gospel, listen to this, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Here it is, verse 16. To the one we are an aroma of death to death. 
to the other, we are an aroma of life to life. You know what that means right there? If you're a Christian today, do you know what that means? That means that when you share the gospel with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your family member, with your friend, you know what it means? That means a hell and heaven wait in the balance. In other words, by virtue of your ministry to them, there's life and death there. There's judgment and salvation right there. Everything is on the line. The, 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 what's at stake is no different than Isaiah. You are the means that God chooses to be either in a realm of death to death or life to life. And like Isaiah, we should say what Paul says, who is adequate for these things? Well, that's if you grasp who you are in Christ and what the gospel really is all about. The gospel is so much more serious than many people make it out to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, Lord, your good word. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah that through his example, we are instructed to take the gospel more serious. Whether we like it or not, as Christians, we are an aroma. And we will be a fragrance of one or another. We will be a fragrance of either death or life. And on top of, on top of that, two chapters later, Paul reminds us that we are ambassadors of Christ. That we are meant to be emissaries, meaning go out. Let your light shine. Take the message and offer salvation. Offer the living water to those who need, who are thirsty, who are weary. Lord, help us. Awaken us to the reality of the treasure that lies within these earthen vessels so that we might, in obedience to the Great Commission, <laughs> we might make disciples of all people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.